0: Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast and this is the final episode in our series of Tour de France podcasts that we've been bringing you over the last three weeks. Uh, My name is George Scott, Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar and today I'm joined by Jack Luke, Deputy Editor of Bike Radar and Simon Bromley, Technical Writer on Bike Radar. Morning chaps how are you
1: Very well thank you George enjoying this sweltering heat and enjoying uh, reflecting on what has been a wonderful race this year
2: Yeah I'm good as well it is absolutely sweltering in Bristol today so I'm yeah very much feeling the kind of tour de france tour de
0: france vibe so today we're going to bring you our wrap up of the Tour de France and included it within that will be some of our Tour de France awards. So the best rider, the best stage and also looking at some of the best tech and perhaps some of the tech fails from this year's Tour. But to kick off, let's just open with uh, an easy opener for you, Simon. Did you enjoy this year's race?
2: I, I, it was a tough one. Obviously, I always enjoy the Tour de France because you know you get all the big names and I think the opening few days were uh very very good um had some some great kind of battles on the opening stages but i think i mean my interest sort of waned a bit as the race went on because the you know we'll discuss this a bit later but the gc battle kind of just got absolutely strangled (laughs) by the winner um so yeah my interest in it waned but you know, nevertheless, uh, you know, oh, it's still the Tour de France and there were there were plenty of great stages, but, um, you know, perhaps not the best ever.
0: Yeah, we'll come on to because, you know, this was a race where the GC battle was really kind of hotting up from, well, from the Grand Depart to have four contenders. And as it just turned out, it didn't turn out that way, not just because Pagaccia was the, the strongest rider by far, but because the first week did have so many crashes. Um, but we'll come on to that. But we are going to open with the best rider of the Tour or, in our opinion, the best rider of the Tour. And, you know, interesting, actually, we discussed this before the podcast that none of us did choose Tadej Pogacar, but we'll come on to that in a second. But Jack, do you want to open up with who your best rider of the 21 Tour de France was? Well, how could it be
1: anyone else but Mark Cavendish, who equaled Eddie Merckx's uh, record for the most stage wins ever taken in Tour de France. Um, he won it in pretty incredible style and he was very entertaining to watch throughout the race. But for me, as a rider, he is so not robotic and a very emotive man and very candid about just how hard the racing is. And, you know, he's an incredibly specialist rider, arguably the best sprinter of all time. And just talking about how miserable a time he was having on a mountain stages, I found very entertaining and very illuminating. Um, but also just clearly how much the win, particularly his first one, meant to him. Uh, him and Julian Alaphilippe almost going in for a little kiss. I mean, it was just all too much to handle. Uh, and that kind of, anti-toxic, very, yeah, emotive way of being in public is, is very rare in sport and something I very, very much enjoyed seeing. He's also very funny to follow on Instagram and post some really, really rubbish DIY memes sometimes, which I very much appreciate. So he was my standout from the tour, not only for his incredible performance, but for who he is as a person. Even if he did have a little grumble as a mechanic at the end, but he did apologise <laughs>
0: He did, he did. And I think we can um, perhaps let Cav off, uh, there you perhaps the, the pressure of that stage, was stage 19, um, that we thought was going to be a sprint stage and turn out that way. Um, but yeah, interesting one to see that on Instagram. But Simon, what did you make of Cavendish's Tour? Because we recorded a podcast uh, in the build-up to the race and were perhaps contemplating whether maybe, just maybe, Cavendish could win a stage. You know, it didn't look like uh, he was going into the Tour, perhaps with the capability to, to, win, to win four stages. You know, it's been one of the... You know, not not necessarily the uh, one of the stories of the tour, but one of the stories of the year, or even one of the stories of the past year, uh, the past few years of pro cycling. It was uh, you know an incredible performance from Cav.
2: Yeah, totally. And I think like a lot of people, I really underestimated how good he was going to be. Um, I, I think you know, but you know, anyone who's kind of been listening to this series of podcasts will remember me saying I didn't think he would win the green jersey. So that alone is <laughs> pretty extraordinary because that's not easy. And you know, if we were being really harsh we might say that he he was fortunate that Caleb Ewan and Peter Sagan both crashed and had to leave the race which kind of opened up the you know reduced the kind of quality of the field a little bit but you know this is this is always the thing for the Tour de France in all of these classifications you know you only have to beat who's there and surviving the race is part of it you know other sprinters went home because they they didn't get over the mountains in the time cut and and that's part of it so yeah i mean a spectacular performance and i think you know i think you, you know he he has often been underestimated throughout his career as a rider who perhaps, you know, on paper, doesn't produce the power numbers that some of the bigger guys do. You know, you hear like the likes of Andre Greipel can still apparently hit 2000 Watts and hold 1500 Watts for 20 seconds or whatever, but, but he's not winning stages, you know, like Cav is. And so I think, you know, it's a kind of refreshing to see someone who's not all about the kind of pure numbers being so successful and, you know doing it via kind of skill and tenacity and all of those things so yeah fantastic to watch
1: i thought you were going to kind of dive in there and say it was because he was Aero or something
2: simon i could feel you kind of <laughs> pushing to get that in that's one of that's you know i mean just, that's one of his things and had we had the opportunity to you know, publish one of the hundreds of retrospective galleries we had planned then um <laughs> yeah we might have we may have commented
0: on that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we. I think every kind of journalist and editor has been crying into their laptop uh, this morning and um, you know last night when the stage finished when when Cavendish didn't win and you know I think you know we need to be careful that you know Cavendish not winning you know isn't necessarily a story in itself and that's something he said for his through his career you know often when he hasn't won a sprint at the Tour de France the story has been Cavendish loses when that you know that just isn't the case it's those stage the, those stage finishes are chaotic and competitive and the fact that he's been so consistent over the years has has been remarkable but you're right Simon in that you know whilst perhaps the stars did align for Cavendish in a number of ways and you know perhaps the, the sprinter field this year wasn't as strong as it has been in previous tours you know part of that is because numerous sprinters either abandoned the race through crashing which is perhaps no fault of their own in some in some cases but you know also didn't make the time cut so you know, that came that became a story in itself throughout the race, the fact that the De Quickstep quick-step team were rallying around Cavendish. You know, it was almost a case of, okay, uh, you know, this guy's won the stage and now we're looking at the clock and seeing will Cav kind of make it over the mountains and make it within the time cut. And he did, and to win the, to win the green jersey, you obviously have to do that. Um, and, yeah, I think it's worth saying this. this is only the second time that he's won the green jersey in his career. So, you know, as well as kind of equally and in, equal in Merckx's record, the fact that he's won that green jersey... Uh, you know, it, it's remarkable and shouldn't be overshadowed by the facts. The fact that perhaps he didn't quite get there uh, on the of Ibiza yesterday. Um, Obviously, he was a, a last-minute addition to the team. Do you reckon we'll see
1: him making a return next year's tour?
2: I would have thought so. Yeah, Sam Bennett, I think, is going to is leaving Quickstep, isn't he? Potentially going back to Bora. So, um, yeah, I would I would assume that Cavendish will be remaining at Quickstep on a you know likely a, a, a juicy contract. And um yeah, hopefully we'll see him back at the tour, yeah, absolutely. I can't see why not,
0: yeah, I think so. you know that that you know Cavendish said numerous times through the tour that one of the reasons that he was winning was because he's happy, and so yeah, it's obviously up to the team as to what they want to do with him next year and what kind of contract they'll offer, but you kind of see that as a bit of a, a bit of a shoe in for Cav next year, certainly getting a contract, whether he'll ride the tour, it depends how the uh you know the makeup of the team um you know kind of settles down over the winter but you know the green jersey winner and a four-time stage winner. You can't you can't leave him out next year, um, Simon. So let's move on to your pick because you didn't pick Cavendish. So who was your best rider of the tour? So I've gone for uh, Wout van Art, which I think you. Also, are going to go
2: for George, and um, we'll kind of comment on like the reason I didn't go for Pogacar because clearly he was the (laughs) the standout rider of this year's tour, but he's almost too good that it's kind of it feels like it's not worth discussing. He was so much better than everyone (laughs) in the GC that it's kind of like, yeah, (laughs) it's hard to kind of it, it it's hard to get excited about that because we never really saw him put on the back foot. Whereas I think you know what was impressive about Van Aert is just the kind of variety of his performances, you know, to win the, the, the Ventoux stage, which included a double ascent of Mont Ventoux, you know, to win the final time trial and then to win the sprint on the Champs-Élysées, you know, that kind of versatility is just extraordinary. And, you know, we, it's in a kind of era where everything is kind of marginal gains and all of that stuff, it, w- you know, we, we have seen a big trend for riders to specialize in the last decade or so. And so seeing, all-rounders like him and Matthew van der Poel, who can kind of do it in the classics, do it in the time trials, you know, produce extraordinary performances in the mountains as well. Like, it's it's really, really exciting. And, and I really hope he resists the kind of boring journalist question of, oh, well, you know, will you consider targeting the GC? Because I just think the kind of compromises he would have to make in terms of, like, losing weight and therefore potentially losing a bit of power and, and you know, riding in that kind of boring way of limiting time losses and not, you know, not wasting energy. I think that would take a lot of fun out of the racing. And you know, Matthew van der Poel gets asked this question all the time, and I think it's really dull. And I think it undervalues their kind of achievements as, you know, all-rounders and to say that, well, you know, you've done, you've won all of these stages, but you know, have you considered going for the GC? As if the GC is somehow magically better than winning a mountain stage, a time trial, and the Champs Elysees sprint. Like to me, we should just be looking at this performance and, and and enjoying it, and not you know thinking about what it means for everything else. And admiring his beautiful head of hair all the way. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, yes. His shock of
0: jet black hair. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I I completely agree. You know, Wout, Wout van Aert was my was my pick as well. Um, you know, as you said, Pagatru is you know perhaps the obvious pick or, or Cavendish. But uh, I think I saw on on Twitter on Sunday from Andy McGrath ruler you know, it was the equivalent of the perfect hat trick: the left foot, right foot header, you know, to win, uh, you know, a mountain stage, but not you know not not just any mountain stage as well. You know, a double ascent of von T- of uh, Mont Ventoux, um, and then the final time trial, and then. A day later, the sprint, but you know, again, not only any any old sprint, but the the equivalent of the sprinters' world championship on the on the champs elysees. It's uh, yeah, I mean, there's we've talked endlessly, or, or journalists have talked endlessly over the last few years about the versatility of, of Wout van Aert. But um, if there's one way to to show that it's with you know this hat trick at the Tour de France, so um, you know, again, you know, his victory on on Sunday was perhaps overshadowed very slightly by the fact that the talk was all about Cavendish, but you shouldn't take anything away from Wout van Aert. He's had an absolutely sensational Tour de France. Um, so yeah, he also gets my pick. Also worth saying as well that he's won stages now in the 2019, 2020 and 21 uh, Tours de France. So, um, you know, clearly got consistency from year to year as well. Um, just very briefly, actually, because we mentioned uh, Andre Greipel earlier. So kind of uh, just to rewind a bit, but a shout out to Andre Greipel because he's... <laughs> Uh, he announced at the end of the Tour or in the closing stages that it was lo- it would be his last Tour de France and he's going to retire at the end of the year. Um, and he's won 11 stages over the years. So, you know, we shouldn't kind of remember the the kind of impact that uh, Greipel has had on the race, particularly in those kind of um, the Pete Cavendish days and when you had Marcel Kittel as well, you know, it was an incredible sprint field and Peter Sagan at times. So, um, yeah, a little shout out there for Andre Greipel. So let's move on to our best stage of the Tour. Um, Simon, do you want to kick us off on this one?
2: Yeah. So I really enjoyed stage seven. Um, and I think, you know, part of, part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much, cause it was early in the race and, and the kind of like the way it panned out gave us a kind of sense that the rest of the race might pan out like this so kind of what happened was that they had a really fast start and lots of the tour stages had a really fast start this year so you know if you're watching the coverage live it's always good to watch the first hour because they're kind of trying to get in the break is always absolutely manic and on stage seven a 29-man break went up the road including some really big names like Mal Van Aert, Matthew van der Poel, Cavendish, uh, Vincenzo Nibali and it basically you know the GC teams don't want to let 29 people go up the road because that's an uncontrollable amount of people. And it, it kind of just looked like UAE had lost control of the race at that point. And so Pogachar was already, you know, he was already looking really, really good, but the kind of narrative was that, well, maybe he doesn't have the team to control the race and that might open up later on when some of the other big GC teams take it on. There's a medium mountain stage, uh, Matej Mohoric, Mohoric won his first of two stages. Very oppressive style. Later on in the stage, Richard Carapaz attacked and sort of gained 40 seconds on um, the GC group, including Pogachar, until Movistar, for some reason, who knows, maybe because they still hold a grudge against him, but we're not sure, closed it down. (laughs) So, but yeah, it was just a really kind of chaotic stage. And and I think at that point, we were, you know, I was starting to think, well, maybe the UAE team won't be able to control this race in the manner that they're just, you know, going to allow Pogachar to shut it down. Now, unfortunately for the viewers, UAE turned out, you know, they kind of rallied really well and and they did, um, they did protect Pogachar really, really well. And obviously they did kind of shut down the race. But at that point in time, I was getting very excited.
0: Yeah. I think that, that, that was a great, a great pick and one that I very nearly picked myself and yeah, I think not only was it a great stage, I think it was also a bit of a surprise because it was a 249 kilometre stage, the longest for, I think, since the early 2000s, if I remember rightly. So, you know, at the end of quite a difficult first week, it had the potential to be a, you know, a bit of a snooze fest in terms of the brake going away and then the peloton sitting up. But I think, you know, the size of the brake and the makeup of the brake in terms of the quality of the riders really, really made that stage. Um, and yeah, you yeah, know, going back to Cavendish again, you could see that the stars aligned by the fact that he got into that break with Caspar Asgrain I think, um to mop up the intermediate sprint. So, you know, I think after the opening week you had, you, you could start to see there this was perhaps going to be Cavendish's tour. Um yeah, I think also that's a great pick because the first week in general was perhaps one of the first, the best first weeks we've seen at the tour for a long time. Yeah, a couple of really punchy opening stages, then um, you know, not necessarily what we want to see, but crashes on stage three that really kind of shook up the race. Cavendish won on stage four, we had the time trial on stage five. Cavendish won again on stage sh- stage six into Chartreuse, where he won his first Tour de France stage, and then that really set it up to to head towards the mountains on stage seven. So, really, kind of capped off a uh, an incredible first week. But the you know the pick for me, I think, was stage two, which was a tricky one because you know you could have picked numerous stages from the opening week, but um, it came after a brilliant first stage won by Julian Alaphilippe, completely put the whole. Uh, kind of peloton and his competitors to bed on, on that kind of final rise but uh, stage two was where we had the the kind of double ascent of the Mur de Britannia finishing on, on that kind of short punchy climb in Brittany and you know, it wasn't necessarily the most action-packed stage but uh Mathieu van der Poel won it in <laughs> typical kind of Matteo van der Poel style probably putting out 2,000 watts on that climb to completely <laughs> obliterate the field um, but it was his first Tour de France stage win on his race debut and um, not only was it an impressive attack, I think there was also the, the kind of emotional side to it, um, you know, of course, you know, putting the yellow jersey on uh, for the first time for himself. But, you know, also, you know, a feat that his grandfather never achieved, despite being such a prominent figure at the Tour and, and finishing second in the race. So, um, yeah, it was stage two and Mathieu van der Poel for me. So, Jack, on to you. What was your pick of uh, the best stages? And I've seen your notes before this podcast. It's an interesting pick and perhaps one that um, you know, gives our listeners an insight into your riding style.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, in stark contrast to Simon's pick, I really enjoyed uh, Stage 19 where the Peloton did let the brake go up the road and do all the hard work and they just sat back and had a lovely ride through the countryside and it felt much more accessible than usual, <laughs> cycling they were doing. Or I feel like if I'd been dropped in the middle of that pelton, I could maybe stick with them for, I don't know, five kilometres before I get spat out the back. But it was was very entertaining to see them all catching up and uh, having a chat amongst themselves after what had been a fairly chaotic tour. And uh, yeah, it was a bit of a return to very old school style of racing. I couldn't recall last time that kind of happened, particularly in um, the closing stages of a tour.
0: Yeah, that was good to see. It made me smile as well. Um, And you're right, you know, a bit of a throwback um, to some of those stages in the past where, you know, perhaps half of the tour would be made up by 200 kilometre plus sprint stages, which, you know, definitely, you know, require kind of managing uh, in terms of the break and the sprint teams. But, um, you know, for the most part, whilst the break's going away, the peloton did set up and, you know, know, kind of have a chat and we'll be rolling past the sunflower fields and it'll be very lovely, but perhaps (laughs) we haven't seen that so much in recent years. Okay, so let's move on to our surprise package of the tour. Um, And perhaps a a tricky one to pick out in the sense that, uh, you know, the Cavendish story was a surprise, but we all know the the kind of talent of Cavendish over the years. Um, And the GC race was completely sewn up from, you know, almost the opening few stages after the crashes we had there. So Simon, let's talk through your surprise package of the tour to start uh, I wanted
2: to give some credit to uh, kind of Carapaz, but also I suppose the surprise package was maybe Ineos. And I think after Thomas had his, uh, you know, pretty bad crash where he dislocated his shoulder, they didn't seem to, they just looked like a kind of shadow of their f- former self. And, you know, they kept kind of riding in in that same way where they were controlling the race and taking it on and making it hard. And, those tactics didn't really seem to upset the race very much, but we'll give credit to Richard Carapaz because he was really the only GC contender to kind of consistently go on the attack and try and put uh, Pogacar on the back foot. And, um, you know, obviously didn't, wasn't successful in the end, but he landed on the podium in Paris, thanks to some aggressive riding and yeah, like if it, if, it ha- if it hadn't been for him, you know, in a GC battle that was defined a lot by following wheels, you know, it, it, was, a, it was we were fortunate to have Carapaz and his kind of attacking riding style to
0: enliven the race. Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting an interesting pick because the Ineos tactics were questionable at times, and you, you know, we were kind of wondering what they were working towards. And I think, you know, as spectators, the you know, the easy thing for us to assume there was that they were going for stage wins, and perhaps they were. But you know, maybe it was a case of not necessarily targeting stage wins, but trying to eat up time and, and kind of put other podium contenders into difficulty. Perhaps knowing that the the top step of the podium was out of reach for them.
2: Yeah, so I, I think you know, Ineos were kind of you know they they brought a team that was built to kind of defend a GC lead from a kind of the likes of Thomas or a, or a Carapaz, and obviously they didn't end up in the yellow jersey. So, but they still had that you know, that that team who could do that riding style of riding a high tempo on the mountains. And, you know, to be fair, it did put a lot of other GC contenders in, into trouble. It just did it. They weren't able to put Pogachar into trouble. And it, and it's kind of one of those things where I don't know what else they could have done in, in a sense. Like a lot of, there were a lot of calls to kind of maybe fire team members up the road and put pressure on them that way. But Port and Thomas just didn't seem capable of that, you know, the kind of the last guys on the mountains tended to be, uh, Kwiatowski or maybe even, um, Castrovieco. So, you know, they're not really GC guys and, and sending them up the road for stage wins might have been a good idea, but I think Ineos really came for the GC and as they always do. And, you know, Carapaz looked very good throughout the race and it was always possible that Podchakar could have had a mechanical or a crash or something like that. And then, you know. Carapaz went into the time trial in the end, only kind of a few, sec- a few seconds behind Vingegaard. And if something had happened, so it's it, it's easy to be an armchair DS, as as everyone knows. But I, I think you know a podium result is a good result for Richard Carapaz. and you know Ineos will not have taken this loss lightly. And I'm sure Dave Brailsford and the re- and Rod Ellingworth and the rest of the kind of management team there are looking at Pochakar and thinking, you know, how are we going to beat him? And, and they'll be hatching a plan. I'm sure they're not just going to lie down and, you know, change change the way they race.
0: I think, uh, you know, f- f- for me, you know, Carabas did have a good tour and I think, you know, it's definitely worth pointing out now that he's finished on the podium at all three Grand Tours, which is obviously an achievement in itself. But, you know, my pick for the surprise package, uh, you know, another guy that did well on the GC, in fact, finished second overall in the GC, was Jonas Vinnegaard from Yumbo uh, Visma. And, you know, a rider who, you know, came into the tour as a domestique for Primus Roglic. Um, and I think, you know, Yumbo Visma's tour, you know, for the to a greater or lesser extent was over after the first few days in that they were here for uh Primoz Roglic. but you know, really ra- rallied in the second week and, and the third week. Um, you know, particularly for Vinegard on the Von Two stage where you know that was the only time when we saw Pogacic put into difficulty, you know, lost a few seconds, a handful of seconds over the top of the climb, um, made it back on on the descent. But, you know, credit there for Finnegard for you know, being the ride who could do that to Tadej Um But also it was only his second Grand Tour and he finished 46th at the Vuelta last year, um, but really stepped up to the plate for, um, for Jumbo Visma, who, of course, also won the three stages with Roglic and Sepkus and Andorra. So, you know, after a kind of a disastrous opening few days for that team, uh, they finish perhaps as the team of the tour. Um, so let's now move on to some of the, the tech from the Tour de France and our tech highlights. Uh, we've talked about the riders and the route and our opinions on the race, but let's uh, you know let's start with the best bike of the tour. Quite a difficult award, a bit kind of spurious to a, a greater or lesser extent. But Simon, <laughs> what was your best bike of the tour? I have
2: to say, like I, I, I don't know, I find it hard, quite hard to get uh, excited by a lot of the bikes this year. Um, there wasn't really anything new or spectacularly exciting so i found it very hard to pick pick one i mean there were some there were some nice custom paint jobs and kind of stefan kung's european champions time trial bike was very nice and yeah i don't know i i, I would I'm, I'm struggling to pick one bike really and and i and i i know part of this is because maybe there's other events coming up at which we'll see new products. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to award a kind of best bike of the tour this year because I haven't really been impressed by any of the recent releases. So, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: unlike Simon, I'm a simple magpie of a man and I was attracted to Trek-Segafredo's sparkly red Madone's, which I've always had a soft spot for the Madone. I think it's a very cool, uh, very optimized looking aero bike, but in that resplendent red paint job I think it really stood out and Simon, Simon and I remarked on this in a previous podcast but I just simply do not know why more teams don't go wildly larry with their paint jobs because it means we're going to talk about it on podcasts on bikeradar.com and it just seems like such a simple win for a bike brand to put yeah a crazy looking bike out into the peloton people are going to look at it so yeah that was my pick purely because it was a wonderful color
0: yeah, you know we'll we'll come on to the tech trend of the tour, and perhaps one of the the kind of tech trends of recent years is the fact that we don't see so many custom paint jobs at the Tour de France or in pro cycling generally. I think yeah, you know, it's something that you've spoken about in a previous article, Jack. You know, back in the uh, you know the kind of twenty tens, I suppose the the kind of early to mid twenty tens, we'd see so many custom paint jobs at the Tour de France. You know, kind of celebrating rider achievements, rider nicknames. Yeah, uh, you know, every year at the mm-hmm. tour, you know, Vincenzo Nibali when he's in his pomp you know had a kind of uh a shark themed um you know bike often a a specialized when he was riding um at Astana I think so yeah that's a shame that we don't kind of see that so much and I think it would be good to see teams and brands perhaps be a bit more creative with the paint jobs both for the the kind of stock team bikes but also for you know some of the riders who uh you know have obviously got achievements that we can we can celebrate through through the bike and through the uh through the paint job they have on them so Um, hopefully that's something that will come back in in tours to come um i think you know simon definitely makes an interesting point in that you know there haven't been many new releases this year and there are probably a few factors that play into that in terms of component availability and and, you know the kind of knock-on impact from from the pandemic but um you know my pick isn't necessarily the best bike but it is uh the best brand i suppose or the the kind of brand that had um the most successful tour and that isn't necessarily down to the number of stage wins but it was Cervelo for me and that was down to Wout van Aert and I think you know we should always say when we're talking about the best bike that it's of course the rider who is the person who powers the bike but Wout van Aert won on three different bikes for all three of his stages so he won on the R series bike for the Mont Ventoux climbing stage the P5 time trial bike of course for the time trial and then the S5 aero bike for the sprint so uh, yeah, I think definitely doing a good job for Cervelo there in terms of kind of selling the, uh, you know, the individual claims and, um, purpose of each of those bikes. So, uh, yeah, again, shout out to Cervelo, but big shout out to Wout van Aert for winning those three stages. Just on that briefly,
1: obviously he abandoned the tour fairly early on, but I always think of the likes of Vanderpool and van Aert as well. Like for those brands, particularly Vanderpool, where he's winning mountain bike races, he's winning cyclocross races. Winning road races, I just you know, as an all-round package for showing that you make good bikes. My goodness, I bet they were pleased to have them on the team.
0: Uh, like what a, a marketing coup! Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, Mattia poel left the race uh in the Alps to prepare for Tokyo to to race the mountain bike race there, and then. Uh, you know, interesting in uh, Wout van Aert's interview straight after the the sprint on Sunday, said that, you know, he couldn't do too many interviews or celebrate too much because he was going to jump on a plane to fly to Tokyo because they're doing the road race. So, yeah, you know, those those riders, the, the kind of the way they dominated cyclocross and the way that they're now dominating road across multiple different stages and different types of terrain. Um, as Simon said at the start of this podcast, it's so good to see riders like that because it doesn't come down to the gc battle which can be stifled at times you know it's riders kind of going out there attacking and just lighting the race up and making it more interesting for us at the end of the day which is um uh, you know definitely has made the tour de france better for that let's now move on to our next award which is the tech trend of the tour um jack do you want to start us off with this one
1: yeah i mean i don't mean to be a, a Debbie downer again like simon but for me Compared to previous years, there has been no massively overriding story or like huge launch which has really shaken up the race. I speculated we'd maybe see the new dura group set at the Tour. We had seen it at the Balwas Belgium Tour, but no sign, no sniff of it. And I promise you, we had been scouring Getty looking for the images, but it just wasn't there. Um, now, as Simon hinted at, I suspect a lot of that's to do with the fact that Tokyo starts imminently. And... You know, the Tour de France is cycling's biggest race, but it's not quite as big as Tokyo. So I think if any brands are holding on to juicy new tech, I suspect we're going to see it there. So there was definitely some really interesting tech. And Simon will go over the kind of non-sponsor correct stuff, which maybe defined the race. In terms of brand new stuff, there wasn't a great overriding story for me this year
2: yeah so I sort of saw you know, we saw a lot of non-sponsor correct kit being used this year you know particularly in the time trials but also in the road stages and it you know I, I spoke to um Xavier Disley of AeroCoach in a podcast and uh, when we previewed the uh the final uh final time trial at the Tour de France so if you haven't listened to that that's, that's well worth, worth a listen but you know f- I think he kind of explained that all the teams are doing a lot of testing now so they have a a real wealth of knowledge on you know what actually is fast and what actually isn't fast and of course it varies depending on you know what bike you're using so if the team switches bike sponsors they may need to get a new set of wheels and tires to go with that bike as well if they want to ride the fastest thing and I think a lot of this has kind of come out of uh You know, Ineos, Grenadiers for a long time, you know, formerly Team Sky have have always used kind of non-sponsor correct kit when they feel like there was a tangible performance advantage to be gained. And I think a lot of the other teams have just kind of realized that they can't afford to let those gaps lie. And so, you know, they're negotiating with their sponsors to either, you know, get better equipment from the sponsors and then in the meantime use kit, unbranded, you know, and that's obviously a tricky situation because cycling relies on sponsorship so much and, you know, no one wants to upset someone who's giving you kit or money, but at the end of the day, people are making decisions based on performance. So, you know, for those of us who care about what is good and, or, you know, what's better than everything else, then it is very interesting that we've seen, you know, a lot of non-sponsor correct kit at this year's Tour de France. And You know, the fact that we're commenting on it, I wonder if uh, next year some of the sponsors might clamp down on it because now it's being noticed. (laughs) Um, But it is interesting because, you know, with the rise of things like house brands and, you know, kind of big, big name bike sponsors like Trek and Specialized, you know, taking over teams we have seen less room for maneuver for riders to customize their bikes you know we 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 used to see all the time a kind of a a rider on a maybe you know a saddle with the logos blacked out or tires with the logos marker penned over you know cranks with a little bit of electrical tape over the logo but we just don't see that so much anymore um but you know wheels are kind of easier to maybe hide to a certain degree or you can put you know a logo on it of your own sponsor and you know pretend it's so we are seeing it a bit more. I don't know how long that will continue for, but it is it's an interesting trend.
0: Yeah, and one of the the trends of a few years ago was, uh, you know, something you talked about there with the, the kind of rise of the house brand and what that meant was that if a if a team was associated with a certain frame manufacturer, be it Specialized, then you know often the you know, part of that deal would be that that team uses Roval wheels and Roval components. You know, equally in the last few years or in the last decade we've seen shimano absolutely dominate the peloton um but that's not just with their group sets but it's often with wheels as well so the teams that shimano does sponsor often get tied into a a sponsorship deal with with wheels as as well but you know perhaps now we are seeing teams being willing to take a few more risks in terms of using non-sponsor correct kit and you know wheels are the the kind of obvious talking point there because there is a tangible gain from using a more aerodynamic or a faster wheel set um, but yeah, that'd be one to watch next year, and to see perhaps if that kind of trend reverses. Um, just quickly on Campagnolo, actually, because they did win the tour for the the second time, Simon. So, mean, that was one that you wanted to talk to talk about.
2: Yeah, I just think it's um, it's, it's it's worth paying attention to because I think it's gone kind of unremarked upon in the wider cycling media that this is a, yeah a second tour win in a row for Campagnolo, and they don't get as much. Media attention, as the likes of you know uh, Shimano and and SRAM, and that you know that's partly because they're kind of they're not always they're not releasing kit at the same rate. You know when obviously the, when they released their gravel group set at Ecar or Ecar recently, you know we like did get a lot of coverage, but we haven't seen a new super record EPS group set in a few years. You know, I d- not that it needs updating particularly, but it's, you know obviously Campagnolo was once the dominant force in road cycling and and it had fallen off that by, you know, quite heavily, it, it had been, you know, a number of years before Pogacar came along that Campagnolo had won a Tour de France. So I think it's, um, it's good to see and, you know, even though I'm probably not the target customer for Campagnolo, I, you know, it's such a, a kind of historic brand in cycling that I think it's good to see them at the real the top of the sport, you know the real top step.
1: Don't worry, Simon. I'm going to get a hold of a super record <laughs> EPS bike for you to test now because I feel like you need to be indoctrinated with the passion of the brand. <laughs> well, my, my
2: granddad would be impressed. <laughs> oh,
0: I, I, and off the back of that, we can perhaps see if you can climb like Tadej Pogacar as well. So, oh, I'm um, sure it's all down
2: to the gears. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, just just to finish this section, so. If, yeah, for me, this is one that we've talked about a bit, so we won't kind of spend too much time here, but it's the fact that De Quickstep were on, on clinches for the Tour, um, or certainly said they were going to be on clinches for every stage of the Tour, and finished the race with five stage wins and no kind of notable disasters in terms of punctures and uh, issues with tyres. So, um, yeah, stage win for Julian Alaphilippe on stage one, taking the yellow jersey and the green jersey. And then, of course, as we've said, four stage wins for Mark Cavendish. So, yeah, this is one that we've talked about a lot in terms of the move, a very slow move away from tubular tyres to uh, tubeless for some teams and clinchers for others. Um, certainly in time trials, we've seen tubeless and clinchers come to the fore. But I think this, was a, this is the first time we've certainly seen uh, a complete team ride, a clincher set up at the Tour um, and obviously to, to a lot of success. So you know whether that's something we're going to see other teams kind of take a look at and uh, you know, specialised have made a lot of the fact that they believe a clincher set up to be the fastest setup so going back to that kind of marginal gains arms race that simon was talking about you know perhaps this is one that's going to uh you know come to light over the next few years so one to watch perhaps um but certainly been a trend over the last few years and uh was again with the kind of quick step at this year's tour so let's move on to our next category and this is the biggest loser of this year's tour um Perhaps a little bit of a harsh one. So I'm going to start not necessarily with an individual rider, but the fact that for me the biggest loser of this year's tour was the GC race, um, and perhaps off the back of it, you know, the the kind of GC spectacle for us spectators. So, as I said at the top of the podcast, we went into the race with you know four contenders for the yellow jersey: Tadej Pogacar, Primus Roglic, the top two from last year, but also from Ineos, Grant Thomas, and um, Richard Carapaz. But you know, for Roglic and Thomas, their tour was effectively over after the the third stage where they both crash, crashed, uh, Primus Roglic badly injured and badly bandaged up um, and Thomas suffering a uh, a dislocated shoulder and, and bravely kind of fighting back to not necessarily lose time there, but losing time significantly in the time trial and his race was over by the Alps. Um, so a real shame that we didn't necessarily have, have that four-way spectacle that we were expecting. Um I think as it turned out, Teddy Pogacar was probably by far the the strongest rider in the race, regardless of what happened. But uh, all of his contenders lost time in the opening week and that perhaps did make it a case of defending rather than attacking from his point of view. Uh, Simon who was your biggest loser of this year's race
2: I think, like you say this is a really harsh award so I don't want it to sound like I think you know this person who I'm gonna say now is a total loser it's more of a case of just like you know <laughs> it's what you know who 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 did it most go wrong for um yeah I think unfortunately I'm I'm gonna say Geraint Thomas like I think like a lot of Brits I had very high hopes for him he he'd looked really good in, in the kind of warm-up races and uh, seemed to be kind of finding that 2018 form again but his kind of Achilles heel is just always that he is just always involved in crashes and unfortunately it was it happened again and you know that as you say like it's incredible that he dislocated his shoulder had it pop back in and then carried on to not just finish that stage, but finish the Tour and, and to be a, you know, a real sterling teammate. But you do wonder if how many more years he's got left in him as a GC contender at the Tour de France. And, you know, will he, is he going to be capable of getting to a level where he can challenge the likes of Tade Podjokar? I mean, it's really hard to kind of see that. Now, That's not to say that, he should just stop cycling and retire of course because there are other goals and uh other races to win but yeah that that was a real shame and and i and i i know again like it's so easy to be an armchair ds or an armchair critic but he just yeah he's always involved in crashes unfortunately they seem to he's like a magnet for crashes (laughs) and uh if you can't if you, yeah, if you, if you get injured and you crash and you lose time, then, you know, it's always hard to mount a real GC battle really, isn't it?
0: mm Yeah. And that, that was a real shame, you know, from our perspective to see Thomas crash on, on that third stage so early in the race when we did have such high hopes coming into it. Um, yeah, you know, it seemed to have such strong form come from the Quartium de Dauphiné and particularly the Tour of Romandie, which he won, um, but wasn't to be, as you say, you, know, you need to stay upright. You need to be protected by your team. You need to have a tactically sound race and you need, and of course you need to perform when it matters in time trials and, and in the mountains. And And this year wasn't the tour for Thomas. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how things look for him next you know, particularly with the fact that, um, you know, perhaps Egan Bernal is returning to form and we'll, we'll see him at, at the Vuelta and see how he performs against, uh, Pogaccia there, uh, with those two kind of slated to line up in Spain. So, um, yeah as you say you know cycling isn't all about the tour de france there are plenty of other prestigious races to to win and to target so um hopefully we will we will see a return to form um from thomas who we should say you know bravely fought on and did a sterling job for the team um you know riding in the mountains but just didn't necessarily have the gc race that we were expecting
1: I think he's kind of acknowledged that himself because he's posted quite a funny thing on his Twitter yesterday of running his face through the face <laughs> app and he looks about two hundred years old. I think he's had quite a tough time of it. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. You know,
0: similar similar to um, I think was it twenty thirteen where he crashed on the opening stage in Corsica and um, fractured his pelvis and 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 limped on through the tour. You know, continuing to perform and continuing to do a job for the team um, with Chris Froome winning that year um so yeah yeah if there's one rider who's uh you know it's a little cliche but if there's one rider who's hardest now is it's it's garant thomas always picks himself up and dusts himself off and and does the job that he needs to do even if his form has taken a hit as a result of it so yeah credit to thomas for finishing but that was funny i did see that uh it was a picture of him riding behind the team car as you say looking about 200 years old (laughs) and perhaps feeling pretty haggard after the last few weeks so hopefully some rest for thomas um Although he was down to ride in Tokyo, the, the Olympic road race, wasn't he? So I don't know if that's still the case. Um, yeah, we'll see on that one. But hopefully at least a few days rest before he heads to Tokyo. Uh, Jack, do you want to give us your biggest loser of this year's Tour de France?
1: I think a uh, pair of Caleb Ewan and Peter Sagan, who both crashed pretty heavily in stage three with um, in the, the, the sprint for the finish. Caleb knocked over Sagan as it kind of looked in the, the footage. And he eventually abandoned right there and then on the stage with broken collarbone if i remember correctly and then sagan following that crash eventually pulled out on stage 12 with a horrible infection in his knee and really if there was any pair obviously there's still lots of you know very good sprint talent left in the race but if there was going to be a pair who would have troubled Cav's record i think it would have been those two um and it was just a real shame to see them crash out so early really and also quite an unpleasant crash as well to watch generally speaking Um, but Simon would of course defend this as he said in the opening podcast
2: for crashing is all part of it he loves to see it (laughs) yeah I think uh that's that's slightly twisting um what I said I but no No, it's um yeah that was a shame and I think obviously for Ewan a big shame because you know he'd looked really really good all season like I, I remember him uh sticking with the league group up the uh the Poggio in, in Milan San Remo and he just he he looked like he was on fire so that was a shame I think for Sagan as well like he he does seem to be a little bit on the wane I wonder if he perhaps I don't know he always said he would retire when he's bored of it and and I and I really hope he's not getting bored of it because <laughs> he's been such a, a great rider over the years and uh, it would be a shame to, to to kind of watch his career maybe you know, fizzle out by his relatively high standards. And um it would be great to see him back on form at some point. And I, I think I'm, yeah, he's not going to the Olympics anymore because of that knee infection. I think he had to have an operation. So that that's a shame. But, um, mm. you know, I've always thought, I mean, it probably won't happen now that Cavendish is back, but I've always thought it would have been good to see Sagan at Quickstep, where he would have uh, had the teammates to kind of cash in all the chips that his legs, his legs bring to a race. But, um yeah, he's tended to... I think, I've think i seen seen the rumours he's going to move to total direct energy, which I really hope doesn't happen because that seems to be a... <laughs> that seems to be a... You know, Nicky Terpstra went there and we haven't heard from him since. I mean, the thing was, Sagan's supposedly bringing an entourage of like
1: 30 other people or something wild, so he's bringing most of a team with him.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, he's, he's such a big name and I'm sure he's bringing an entourage of 30 people plus an entourage of sponsors, so I can see why people why a team would want to sign him. But like you say, it means then building your entire team around him. And that's something that Quickstep aren't going to do. Um, But yeah, I think it's just more of a general point that Sagan has perhaps, you know, been a little bit off his extraordinary best in the past few years. And I think when he's really on form, he carries it with such kind of energy and you know, he, he makes it look so easy and seems to have so much fun winning races. And uh, and I really hope we haven't kind of seen the end of him or the last of him.
0: Yeah, I mean, Sagan is, uh, you know, the, the rider, along with Chris Chris Froome, you know, who's just made the Tour de France over the last decade. You know, the kind of panache that, you know, he would win stages with and get into breaks and absolutely kind of dominating the, the green jersey competition year after year. So... Yeah, it does seem that we're seeing a, a kind of a, a dwindling of, of form and hopefully not a dwindling of um, enthusiasm, like you say. But um, yeah, perhaps time for Peter Sagan to kind of reset and and, and kind of look to the future. But yeah, we'll, we'll see what that holds in terms of the team that he's at. It would, it would be great to see him at De Kernic quick step. And again, yeah, maybe a difficult one to see with Cavendish there. But, you know, two whilst they both contend sprints, two diff, different, very different types of riders in terms of uh you know Sagan being able to target much hillier races and perform at the classics so you never know but um we will watch that over the winter so we're getting towards the end of the podcast and continuing perhaps what is the slightly dour theme of what should be a <PS laughs> celebratory tour de france podcast these are all my suggestions <laughs> these are all simon's suggestions we'll put that one at your door but now we're going to talk about the biggest tech fail so jack talk about your biggest tech fail from the 2021 Tour de France. So
1: the Getty botherers amongst us noticed that in the first two, I think, of Cav's uh, wins, he dropped his chain on both occasions um, right in the very, very line, which, you know, is quite an unusual thing to see these days. Group sets are pretty good. And our frenemies at Cycling Weekly did an interesting Q&A with a wheel designer who proposed that it was something to do with the fact that as Cav crosses the line, if you're really paying attention, he completely stops pedaling, which is actually kind of surreal when you think about it. It's like he comes to a complete dead stop with his pedaling. And they suggested that it was something to do with the kickback from that kind of what whacking the chain off of the um the crank set. Now, obviously that didn't stop him winning, but it, you know. It's a pretty close thing. You know, you'd hope he isn't going to stop pedaling before the line. Oh, he did, mind you, come to think of it on that champs uh sprint. He actually he stopped for a, a half-pedal stroke. But, you know, that could have been pretty disastrous for him and suggests maybe he should be riding with a clutch rear derailleur if he's going to violently stop pedaling right at the very, very line. But yeah, that was an unusual one to see in 2021.
0: Is that is that going to be one of your tech, tour tech predictions for the future then? We'll see a clutch derailleur, mm-hmm. not for gravel riding, but for sprinters
1: exactly yeah i mean it's the it's the safest bet going despite the massive inefficiency
0: <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's worth saying that Cavendish has a pretty pronounced bike throw doesn't he all the all the sprinters do mm. but yeah perhaps the com- combination of stopping pedaling and and the the bike throw as well going in the oppo- opposite direction um chucks the chain off but as you say obviously it's too- not a
1: problem i'm ever going to have to be honest i, I can't say it's going to affect most of us we're not uh, sprinters like cav
0: it, it isn't and obviously not one that yeah, affected Cavendish in terms of his uh, outcome from, from the race. But it was interesting interesting to see. And I think, yeah, I'm struggling to recall, but I think there was an incident a few years ago where Cavendish's chain came off on numerous occasions. And I can't remember which team it was at. And I think it was a, a, a different brand of chain to the Shimano one he's using now. But um, again, perhaps then was something to do with um, just kind of Cavendish's finishing style when he does chuck the bike over the line and, and stop pedaling. Um, Simon, talk us through your tech fail from this year's Tour de France.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so obviously, like I said, just before to start of this section, you know, the, the idea of doing a section on tech fails was actually my idea. But then when I sat down to think about it, I actually really struggled to think of one. Um, it, and, I, and I actually think this year's race has been kind of marked by a notable absence of uh, mechanicals and particularly punctures. You know, seeing punctures at the Tour de France is something you know we' we you're so used to seeing, but i can't really i i I, can't, I struggle to remember any any punctures and really any kind of you know major race ending mechanicals that weren't caused by you know a kind of crash or something you know something like that so you know i don't know if, if bikes are just a bit more reliable now or maybe it, it, because people are switching to tubers technology and we're just seeing less less punctures because of that it, it, i i don't know yeah if, i think i think that's that was a uh, a, sur- a surprise to me. It might, it might have just been luck,
0: possibly. But you know, you're right in that we there were no mechanical incidents of note at all, really, you know, other than those caused by crashes and the injuries that came as a result of those. um you're know, thinking back, there was the incident I think on the second or third stage where one of the Yumbo Visma riders finished the stage with one of his seat stays snapped in half. I don't know if you saw that one. Yeah,
2: yeah. But that was a crash, right? That didn't just occur r- randomly, yeah, v- did it? Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and, and then,
0: certainly, yes, certainly not, uh, <laughs> you know, after kind of uh, naming Cervelo as my bike brand of the tour, I'm certainly not claiming that the bike's just uh, randomly snapping too. <laughs> um, but if anything... It was yeah. an
1: interesting... Oh, Sorry.
0: I was just going to say, you know, if anything, that's, uh, you know, credit to Cervelo for making a bike that's strong enough to be ridden on just one seat stay. But um... a few brands in the past have said that seat stays are pretty much there just because the
1: UCI mandates them. And really bikes, it'd be possible to build a bike with big, massive chain stays that would be absolutely sufficient. And I think that was the line from Cervelo with that particular incident where really they're there because, yeah, the UCI mandates a, a
0: triple triangle makes sense I mean I'm I'm definitely not a structural engineer but um yeah it makes sense from a mechanical point of view in terms of the seat tube and the chain stays doing the majority of the work there but um don't go chop your seat stays off everyone please that'd be a very bad idea yeah, let's get that, <laughs> let's get that disclaimer in there before we finish um so for me uh so biggest tech fail so mine isn't necessarily a tech fail but it's another one for all the journalists who are out there who are preparing their stories on Disc brakes win the Tour de France <laughs> because, of course, the vast, vast, vast majority of riders were on disc brakes at this year's Tour, with Ineos Grenadiers being the only team that were uh, resolutely on rim brakes throughout the race. Um, and Taddy Pogaccio was riding a disc brake Cornago V3 RS um, from start to finish for the most part. However, he did switch to a rim brake bike in the mountains. Um, I'm not sure if he did in the Alps, Simon. Mean, you might know that one.
2: No, so I think he was riding discs in all of basically all of the stages except the the time trial because obviously Colnago doesn't produce a uh, a disc time trial bike, and then he switched to a rim brake bike for the summit finishes, I believe. So, you know, when when we did the modeling for the uh, Von 2 stage, uh, Jean-Paul Ballard of Swiss side sort of commented that yeah you know, because of the the way the vontu stage played out and it had a descent to the finish then an aero bike was able to potentially make up a disadvantage on a lightweight bike on the downhill but when you're talking about a summit finish where you know the race is going to kick off on the summit finish then the kind of calculation can change and and I'm I'm guessing what happened is that the you know Podjacar's conargo with disc brakes is just a little bit over the kind of 6.8 UCI limit with deep section wheels and all of that kind of stuff but then For a summit finish, they want that bike right on 6.8 because, you know, whether it's, you know, two or three, 400 grams or whatever, even if it doesn't make that much difference, you know, the riders care about that stuff and and they want that, the bike that hits the 6.8 kilo limit, especially if, you know, like Podrakar had his eyes on the stage wins, which he did win. (laughs) So, um, I think that was, that was that reason is that for that summit finishes, they wanted that absolute lightest setup possible.
1: Yeah. I think Podjikar is actually just a troll online yeah. and wanted to stoke the uh, the fire of the disc versus rim break argument for years and years to come. He knew that if he if he won on rim breaks, at least one stage, and people will be able to still go forever. Well, they're fine for him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and here we are talking about it. So you know, it's obviously paid off. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. I don't know if we can overstate this, but some credit as well to his team and to, to Con Argo for allowing him to choose the bike that he thinks is right to ride regardless of the terrain in the stage. Um, so yeah, you know, it was interesting that we did see, um, we did see him switch to rim brakes for those two stages in the Pyrenees, but they were really tough stages, kind of two back to back summit finishes and he won them both. So, uh, you know, again, it's the rider doing the business there, but obviously his tech hasn't let him down at all. um, so let's finish, Simon. Let's ask that killer question off the back of that. What won the Tour de France? Was it disc brakes or was it rim brakes? <laughs> I don't think. Yeah,
2: I don't. I, I don't think we can really answer that. I think like it's a hybrid win, isn't it? And I think you know the direction of travel it is pretty clear. And but you know like it is it, as as you just alluded to, George. It this this is the direction of travel is is being pushed by sponsors because you know I think. Jack said before when the uh, last version of the Scott Addict won that the reason Scott decided to stop making Rimbrake Addict was because they weren't selling enough of them and they didn't want to have to make two sets of molds because making molds for carbon frames is very expensive. And so, you know, that the kind of there is going to be a sponsor pressure there. And not every bike brand is going to be willing to keep two sets of molds for every new model, because it's just, especially if they're not going to sell any of them to, to us lovely consumers. So yeah, like, like you say, like the rider has to pedal the bike and, and Pogachar won the tour, not discs or rim brakes, but um, I think he would have won the tour had he been riding disc brakes. So I, I, I think it's kind of, we, we have to acknowledge that we've reached the point where both of them are really good.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. And, and you know, for a brand like Conaga that does offer both options, I think, yeah, as, as you say, he could have chosen either bike in the mountains and performed just as well as he did. So, yeah, a bit of fun for for us to kind of stoke that debate and to talk about it. But, you know, ultimately, as you say, the direction of travel in, in the industry and in the peloton is towards disc brakes. So, you know, perhaps in a couple of years' time, we will see all riders on disc brakes, You know, Ineos is the team that is really kind of holding out there and has signed a new deal with Pinarello. So that'll be interesting to kind of see um, whether they choose to move to discs or whether they get pushed in that direction. I'm not sure. Um, But certainly there's still a place for rim breaks in the pro peloton at the moment, which for me isn't necessarily a bad thing.
1: There's a place for them in the Pro Pelton and in our hearts, George, because we still like rim breaks here by Crater.
0: We do, we do. Long live the rim break. Save the rim break as the uh, <laughs> as, as, as the online campaign goes. Um, Okay, I think that's a good place to wrap things up. It's been good fun to look back at the tour and uh, celebrate some of the racing that we've seen over the last few weeks and also perhaps look at some of the moments that um, have kind of piqued our interest from a tech point of view, both from a good and bad perspective. So let's end things there. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast through all our usual podcast providers. Please do leave us a review. We always value your feedback and your comments and we'll be back soon with one of our usual Bike Radar podcasts. Thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com.